Good evening, everyone. I see there are a few comments, so um, I assume we are live and good to go. I see, um, apparently, I am a prof. Anyways, we'll see how that goes. Um, I hope that you are nice and warm wherever you find yourself. Tonight is really, really chilly. So um, I hope you're comfortable and um, I look forward to teaching this lesson tonight. Um, <clears throat> this book, this chapter of Ephesians is um, one of my favorite and um, it really is, a, I think, a, a critical chapter for every saved person to know and um, to live by. So um, I look forward to teaching it tonight. So you can open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and um, we will be continuing with um, our study of Ephesians. So just uh, a quick, um, or let me rather say, yeah, let me say a quick introduction. So the layout that we're going to be following um, for this chapter is verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10 is... Alive in Christ, verses 1 to 10, alive in Christ. And then verses 11 to 22 is one in Christ. So alive in Christ and one in Christ. So those, that's the division. So in the first half, you'll see that we were separated from God because of our sin. All right. So there's a separation. Remember that the, the theme of the book is unity. So there's a separation caused by sin. But we'll see how we are made alive in Christ or in one with God. And then also in verses 11 to 22, we will see there's a one in Christ where we were separated um, between Jew and Gentile. We were separated from the Commonwealth of Israel. And which is then that dividing wall has been removed by Jesus Christ. And so that's why it lines up very well with the theme of unity. Um, What's also interesting is you'll see in, for example, in, in, in verse um, 4 of um, chapter 2, it speaks about how we were in sin, living in, for this world, and living according to the course of this world. And then it says, but God. So we see, but God come in in verse 4. Then we also see when it, that's now with us towards God and our sin that divided us. But then when it comes to the division caused um, or that existed between Jew and Gentile, we see that um, Paul says that we were aliens um, from the Commonwealth of Israel in verse 12. And then it says in verse 13, but now. And so there's these but moments, these moments that we were separated from God, but now we were separated from the Commonwealth of Israel, but now. And so there's unity. So, with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll start. Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. It's nice and cold outside, Lord, but um, we thank you that we can come together and be warmed um, by your word and by this teaching, Lord, and by the truth that we'll be looking at tonight. Lord, I pray that you would please come speak to us, Lord, that you would... Um, help me to teach clearly and, and effectively, Lord, but also that we would all have ears to hear um, and that we would grow because of what you, what you have written for us, what you've given us here in your word tonight. 
Lord, thank you for these but now, these but God moments, Lord. Thank you for a but God moment in my life, Lord, where you came and you changed everything around and you saved my soul for eternity. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you would be with everyone tonight to anyone listening to this who hasn't had that moment, Lord, that through this lesson, you will also be glorified and save that person's soul. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So, in these, in these three, first three verses, you'll see what we are saved from. All right. So, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, and you'll see also in verse 2 where it says we're in times past. You see, it's something in the past where we are saved from. Now, who is this and you? We get that from the previous context, the previous chapter where we finished. Um, it says in verse 22 of chapter 1, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And it says, which is his body, this church, and you hath he quickened. So the church, it's a, it's a, it's this gathering or this called out assembly, these saved people um, who were once dead, right? In our trespasses and our sins. Now we'll look at the dead aspect when we get to verse 5. But for now, I just want to show you something on the trespasses and sins. So trespasses is overstepping the line or going in the opposite direction. Okay, so that's an overstepping, a transgression. It's overstepping or going the opposite direction. Almost like, like rebelling. And then it says sins as well. And so sin is missing the mark. In other words, our righteousness, our good deeds are far from God's standard for good deeds. So we not only transgress and rebel against God, we also completely miss His standard. We have fallen short of the glory of God. I like that it says, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The in is, a, is almost like a, a realm or a sphere, um, which Paul is trying to create. And you'll see how he explains the sphere in verse 2 and 3. So we were basically surrounded in sin. And even the best of us were drowning um, in sin. And that made us spiritually dead in need of quickening. So I just want to put that, that idea of a sphere or a, a surrounding in which we lived before we were saved. Now, verse 2. Wherein, in times past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now in verse 2, you'll notice there's a constant past tense. There's, it says, in times past. It says, you walked, you had your conversation, we were. So everything is before our quickening, okay? So Paul is speaking about the past before our quickening. So a life before and after this point of quickening, this point of a, making alive, that's what the word quickening means, this point in which we were made alive in Jesus Christ, we were born again. At that point, there has to be a dividing line in the, I want to say, the history of your life. There is a, 
um, there's a past and then a present. And um, in recently when we studied Romans 6, we also see how Paul makes a great case for a Christian's attitude towards sin. Right? It's no longer the same as an unsaved person. It has to change. In verse 2, it also says, you walked according to the course of this world. That means a course is a way or a direction. Um, so essentially, we, before Christ, before our quickening, we were walking or pursuing the desires of this world. We were following the course of this world. When we, um, when we were dead, we were on this road which was governed by our sinful nature and society's pursuits and desires. That's what we were following. We were on this course. And um, if that wasn't enough, the one who was leading us on this course was Satan. It says, so you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. This is referring to, to Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it speaks of the God of this world who has blinded the minds of them which believe not. And that's who we were. We were on this course. We were blinded. We did not see or seek God. And so we were on this, 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 this road driven by society's desires, and then Satan as our guide on this road. And that's why the verse ends by saying, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We were children of disobedience because we were on this course, contrary to what God wanted us to be on, and being led by who God doesn't want us to be led by. And so we were living in disobedience. All unsaved people are living in disobedience to God. All unsaved people. It doesn't mean they can't do things that are good, but they're all living in disobedience because his will is for all of us to be saved. And so Satan leads us away from obedience to God, missing the mark, rebelling against Christ. But Christ leads us back to obedience to God. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to read it as soon as I get there. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. Do you see obey in both verse 8 and in verse 9, how Christ's obedience um, led made it possible for us to be saved if we are in obedience. So Satan leads us into disobedience and Christ leads us back to obedience. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, um, in um, Ephesians chap uh, chapter 2 verse 2, it says, there's a word in the beginning of the verse, it says according. This is just a side note, but according is to say in harmony with. And... Um, and to, in order for someone to harmonize with someone else in singing, there needs to be a lead. And um, before sin, our lead was Satan. But now we, now that we're saved, our lead must be Christ. And so we must harmonize with, excuse me, with his will and no longer harmonize mindlessly with Satan's tune. All right, verse 3. 
among whom also we had we all had our conversation that is to say our conversation is to say um, the way we lived or we had fellowship with all right so these were the people we we um, had fellowship with um, these children of disobedience among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others all of us before Christ had fellowship with these children of disobedience we were a part of them how do children of disobedience live well the rest of the verse explains it in the lusts of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind that is who I was I was a child of disobedience I was living for the flesh and um, the flesh and the mind and Often when you think of living for the flesh and living for the desires of your mind, we often think that it is this, this filthy things. And to an extent it is, definitely includes that, but it also includes things like do whatever makes you happy. It also includes things like just do you, you know, just do you. Follow your heart. That is the desires of the flesh. That is the desires of our mind. And living like that although they may sound relatively innocent that's exactly what satan wants us to live according to and instead of living according to what god expects from us doing what god wants us to do not just fulfilling our empty desires so that is what that's how the children of disobedience live and what does this result in well the end of the verse says we were by nature the children of wrath it results in God's wrath abiding on you. And um, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, oh, it's Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. These children of disobedience are these children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The wrath of God dwells on children of disobedience. So you want to come in line with God and you'll see in verse 4 how, how Paul says, but God. So, um, obedience, as I just said, to the gospel sounds something like this. Accepting what God, what the Bible says about you. Okay, verse 2 and 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, accepting what the Bible has said about you, in other words, your sinfulness, your inability to do anything about it. And what the Bible says about God, His holiness, His justness, but also His grace and His love. And only trusting and obeying that truth above what you think is true. All right? So, your sinfulness, God's holiness... Those two are in contrast with one another. And accepting that truth, that Christ and God, they are holy and merciful, but they're also just. And we are sinful. And so that is the truth of the gospel. And obedience to that is what saves us. I find it interesting that in verse 2 and verse 3, we have all three our enemies mentioned. We have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, that's true, that too. But 
the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three enemies. We find that in um, verse 2 and in verse 3. And um, it's interesting. You'll see how that the things that were our enemies are the things that are supposed to be something of... Sorry, let me clarify my thoughts. We are... The things we now count to be our enemies are the things we lived for and in accordance to. We lived according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now, these three are our enemies in times past. Alright? I just wanted to show you that. Verse 4. It says, But God. Amen. But God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. So we see what we were saved from in verse 2 and 3. Now we are saying, now we're seeing what we are saved by. We were dead, but God. You walked according to this world, but God. You were a child of disobedience, but God. And that is the wonderful news of the gospel. It is simple, but it is monumental. And um, I was playing the song Amazing Grace before we started. And that is a but God song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And so as Paul thinks about this beauty of the gospel, this this but now, how God takes the sinner and recreates him, um, he immediately flips to God's mercy. And that's why he mentions that in verse 4. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Now, I like the definition in Psalm 103 and verse 10. It says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103 verse 10. That is your um, attendance verse for tonight. So that's the definition of mercy. We deserve the wrath of God according to verse 1 and 3. But God did not reward us according to our iniquities. And he says that it says that he is rich in mercy. It's not just it's not just normal mercy that you and I can show to another person. It's not just mercy at salvation, but we know from scripture that his mercies are new every morning. It means that his mercies not only save us, but his mercies sustain us. We can come to him, we can boldly approach the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy because it is new every morning and verse 4 ends by saying wherewith with a great love wherewith he loved us it is a great love because it is unmerited we didn't do anything to earn it romans 5 verse 8 this love also has a vast reach john 3 verse 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son right so the, this love is great because it has a vast reach and this love is also great because it's personal. This love is personal. It's for you. In 1 John 3.16 it says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So it's personal. And that's why it is a great love. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
by grace you are saved. All right, verse 5. So as I said, quickened is to be made alive. And um, I could say, you could say is to be born again. Um, now, whenever we speak about dead in the theological circles, there's a little bit of a debate surrounding what that means or the extent of that death. Um, so if you've ever spoken to someone who is more of a reformed background in Calvinism, you will know that when they read this word dead, they often think of um, a corpse, someone who is completely incapable of doing anything about their situation. And they refer to this as total depravity or total inability. So this person can do nothing about their sinful state. They are dead. But, and so because of that, they say that you are dead. Then you need to be quickened. And then only can you believe. Dead, quickened, and then believe. So in other words, if you have not been quickened by the Spirit, you can't place your faith in Christ and hence you can't be saved. And so that order, I, I believe, is reading into, the, into this verse. I don't think it says that. Um, and I would rather like to show you how I think the order is we are dead. We believe, and because of our relief, because we first trusted in Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 12, we now um, are quickened because of that belief. All right. Um, so on that topic, on that order, um, dead, believe, quickened, in John chapter 5 verse 24, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. Hear, believe, hath everlasting life. The belief precedes the quickening. All right. Um, so when it comes to this dead, being dead in trespasses and sins means that there is no spiritual life in us. It doesn't mean we are incapable of making decisions. It doesn't mean we are incapable of reacting to grace that is shown to us, right? It means that there's no spiritual life in us. We are not yet alive unto God. You remember in Romans chapter 6 verse 11 it says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dead unto sin, alive unto God. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, have a look at that. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. It says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So we are alienated from the life of God. So you can be dead to God. All right. That is something that exists. And that doesn't mean you are morally, socially um, your will or anything is suppressed. It means they're still alive, but you were dead to God. So in sin, we are predestined to hell. Okay, The second death, unlike our predestination to life that we have in Christ. So Paul is essentially saying we are sentenced, okay, because we are predestined unto death if we are not in Christ. Because all those in Christ, those heavenly blessings belong to. So Paul is essentially saying that we are sentenced, but not yet executed. 
We are a dead man walking. Our sentence is awaiting us, the second death. This is awaiting us. In verse 2 and 3 explains what a dead man's life looks like. We looked at that. If that is what your life looks like, you most likely don't have that life of the life of God. You most likely don't have the life that God intended for you. You are dead to it. You are dead unto God. Also, if if this dead meant that you are incapable of doing anything and it's all up to God, you can do nothing. Then the question stands, what do we do with verses like 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. If that is God's will, then why would he only quicken certain people if it was all up to him? It can't be his will that all men will be saved, but then at the same time, all, all ability is in his hands, yet he doesn't do anything about it. So there's, there's, there's a conflict that exists there. Um, so I strongly do not believe that our deadness means that we are totally depraved or totally um, unable to do anything about it. I do believe that we are depraved, verse 2 and 3, but not totally, because we are able, when grace is shown to us, we are able to believe. And because of that belief, we can be quickened. Now, notice in verse 5, the word together with Christ in verse 6, it says, And hath raised us up together, and hath made us sit together in heavenly places. Together, together, together. Now, this tells me two things. One, eternal security. Our salvation is as sure or as secure as Jesus Christ's, because we are together with Him. And so to say that we are not truly saved, that we can lose our salvation, is implying that Christ can lose his, his position in heaven, because we are together. Then also, it tells me something else. Fellowship. Togetherness starts the day you get saved. It's not something for heaven one day. Yes, it will be better. It will be more glorious. But it's not something that is only then. It is together. It starts the day God comes. That but God moment starts in your life. Your togetherness starts with him. Verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is going to start um, speaking about um, what we are saved for. Okay, what we are saved for. So, the first thing is, there is something after salvation. God does not save us to leave us in the cemetery. We are not saved from this deadness to stay a dead man. All right. We are saved unto life. We are ra he raised us up together. You can open to Romans chapter 6. Keep your place. We have raised us up together. Romans chapter 6. Now, 
at salvation, the believer is immediately or immediately becomes a partaker of Christ's death, burial and resurrection. Roman chapter 6 verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You see there, we are saved for something, a newness of life. Verse 5, for if, we ha for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We are saved unto something. Something needs to change when we, be we become a partaker of his death, burial and resurrection. Now, it is here at this moment when you are forever inseparable from the finished work of Christ and the love of God found in him. We read that when we looked at Romans chapter 8. This moment you get saved. From this moment the togetherness begins and it is from there that nothing can separate us. We read in Romans 8 and um, verse five, or 35 it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor angels, nor uh, death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So when we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing can separate us. That togetherness began and that togetherness will forever exist. Now in back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, And sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Sit together in heavenly places. That is something that is present. Not will be. We sit. It is present. It's our new state. In our new state, our saved state, we are already in Christ in heavenly places. Now, remember when we looked at verse 1, I said in. That creates a, a sphere or a habitation or a surrounding in which we found ourselves. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But now we are seated in heavenly places. Our sphere, our, our, our surroundings, our habitat has changed. Now that we are in Christ, we find ourselves in a realm of God's presence. Now, at this point, I want to make a, could you say a side note, but I want to emphasize the importance of good theology at this point, because it is good theology on its own, right? It does not benefit much without practice, but good theology teaches you that you are eternally secure you are already in christ you are already seated in heavenly places your fellowship has already begun your salvation is as secure as christ's himself and so if you don't have this theology as background you will stumble you will fall around you won't know who you are in christ jesus and so some may say it's a cliche but 
find your identity or know your identity in Christ. It's not about your identity, finding yourself. It's about realizing who you are in Christ and all hope and all peace and all comfort and all assurance will be found there, not in you um, and the things that you do. It's found in good theology, knowing what God has done for you through Christ. So let the truth of God's word flood you and wash you. Don't leave it just for the theologians and the pastors, because these truths are made, these things are written to church members. It's not just made for the for the teachers and the preachers to know. All right, verse seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, you can see how Paul is, is getting excited. In verse 6, he said, by God's grace, we are already seated in heavenly places. But then it's like he's almost saying, but that's not the end. <laughs> God's grace exceeds beyond this. He will one day save us from the wrath, glorify our bodies, purge us from this world, um, from all sin, allow us to rule and reign with him. This is just the beginning of the grace we are tasting now. And that's, you see that in, in verse 7, that in the ages to come, one day, right, the fullness of times, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. He's going to show us all these great things that he has planned for us in Christ and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. His kindness, because, you know, we honestly do not deserve the blessings that we have in Christ. It is his kindness. And we read in, um, I think it's in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And that's the same Greek word as that we find translated here as kindness. It's this goodness. It's this kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And repentance, as we know, is part of our salvation, but it's part of a daily worshiping Christian's life in his discovery of his sinfulness and God's holiness and basically basking in his mercy which he has made available for us through Jesus Christ so we are saved from this God forsaken sphere and this deadness to God to a loving graceful relationship in a completely new sphere and that's why verse 8 and 9, Paul says, Oh, by grace are you saved. Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, this is probably of the most, I don't know, in my opinion, familiar verses in Scripture, although not, not known well enough, definitely. But, it starts off by saying, by grace. And then it says, through faith. By grace. So grace was the, was the thing that drew us, was the thing that led us. Right? And so it's by grace. To faith. And then I want you to think of faith as almost a doorway, something that we need to pass through. So grace led us to this doorway called faith. This doorway of faith was created by Christ. 
um, in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, verse um, 16, we see that this faith was con constructed or made possible by Jesus Christ. And Galatians 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. It is by the faith of Christ. So grace, this show of grace, this mercy that we don't deserve, brings us to this point of faith that we need to pass through. We need to pass through. In other words, we need to place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is what this doorway of faith is that we need to pass through. And then it says in verse 8, not of yourselves, right? Not of yourselves. In other words, that salvation I received because is, is not because I did a good job at walking through this doorway of faith. It's not a pat on my back for walking or for placing my faith in Jesus Christ. But rather, it is the great job Christ did in constructing this door and God making this gift possible. So when it says it's not of yourselves, it means that this doorway, this existence of the salvation and everything that comes with it and the fact that God wants to extend it to sinners, it's not of you. It's not on our merit. It's because of what Christ did. It's because of his faith. It's because of God's gift. It's because of his grace. And um, because of the teaching that we found in verse 5, where the Calvinist would say that we are dead in trespasses and sins and therefore we can't do anything, they also teach that the gift spoken of here in verse 8 is faith. So they often speak of the gift of faith. In other words, they have to teach that faith needs to be granted to you for you to be able to believe for quickening. And so they, they would teach that faith is the gift. I do not think that this verse teaches that faith is the gift. And I have various reasons for that. Time is not going to allow me to go into that. But the point is, the, the gift is the entire plan of salvation. It is by grace through faith. That is the gift to everyone who believes. To Jew or to the Greek, as it says in Romans 1 verse 16. Salvation is the free gift to all who receive it and place their faith in it. It is not something, uh, yeah, it is not something granted only to those who were quickened and given faith to believe, as the Calvinists would say. It's given to all, and it's up to us to accept it. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, verse 18, 9 is probably one of the single clearest statements that separates Christianity from other religions, because it says that you at your best if you try your hardest, you are wicked and you cannot earn it. And so that is contrary to religion of every teaching in a nutshell. So it's the single clearest statement that separates Christianity from all other religions. Now it says, lest any man should boast. In other words, a proud and self-righteous Christian has one of two options. One, he's not a true Christian. Because what do we have to boast in? Or he has not fully grasped the pure grace by which he is saved. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Is that 
we do not have anything to boast in. So if a Christian is proud and self-righteous, he's either not saved or he doesn't understand the grace by which he is saved. Because technically there's no room for boasting in the system of grace. If there was room for boasting, then it wouldn't be a system of grace. In Romans 3 verse 27, it says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Because it is by faith, because it is by grace through faith, there is no room for boasting because it had nothing to do with our works, our living in accordance to the law. In Galatians 6 verse 14, um, it says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. So God forbid that I should glory, save, in other words, except in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. What are you What are you saved for? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So God took this wretched sinner I once was, recreated me. It's a workmanship. He worked on me. And this word actually um, in the Greek has the sound of a poem or a, a letter. So God rewrote my story. He recreated me when he says I am his workmanship. And then this new work, this new creature, this new story that he wrote. Sorry. Um, should include good works. We are his workmanship created unto good works. Good works should form or forms part of God's plan for every Christian's life. We looked at God's plan, predestined plan. Good works is part of his plan, his predestined plan for every Christian's life. But also he has some specific works when he saved you. There are some specific things that he specific works he wanted you to fulfill. Now, with verse one to nine as the backdrop this from which we were saved, this for which we were saved, and this by which we were saved, allow me to ask the following question. How do you view your salvation? Do you see what you're saved from? Do you see what you're saved by? And do you see what you're saved for? So how do you see, how do you see your salvation? Is it a get-out-of-jail-free card? Is it a license to sin? Or is it just a moral turning point? Or is it truly what it should be? A complete recreation. A new person with new desires, a new purpose, and a new destination. That is God's whole predestined plan for every Christian. Alright, so we've covered verse 1 to 10, our separation from God because of our sin. Now, verse 11 onward to the end of the chapter, we'll see our separation, a lack of unity um, from the covenant of promise due to our alienation from Israel. Verse 11, wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So remember Wherefore is the wherefore therefore? <laughs> Paul
Paul is saying, now that this great thing has happened to you, this salvation, this eternal security, this fellowship in Christ, this new creature, remember who you were. It would do all of us good to remember every now and then that we were alienated spiritually from God. We were enemies. His wrath was abiding on us. And also, we were enemies or alienated socially and religiously from God's covenants and his promises because we were not part of that commonwealth of Israel. Now, what did this alienation look like? Look at verse 12. That in the time, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, in other words, we had no Messiah. We, and because we had no Messiah we, Messiah, we had no forgiveness. And therefore, we had no eternal purpose. We could eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no value to life if there is no Messiah who came to save and forgive us of sins. It also says that we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That means we were excluded from Israel's divine blessings and promises. As Gentiles, we were completely excluded from the promises that God had for Israel. And then also, in this alienation, the state that we were in, we had no hope and we were without God in this world. We were absolutely hopeless and godless. And when I say godless, obviously, the true living God, we all have many of our own self-made gods, idols, but we were hopeless and godless. That was you. That was me. No saviour, no promise, no hope. And that is why so many people who live without Christ have no peace. They don't mind entertaining the thought of suicide. Because what is the point of this life. There is no hope. There's nothing after this. So if life, excuse me for saying that, so if life sucks, just end it. Because what else is there? No hope. So in an unsafe state, this life, the life we live now, is as close as it will ever we will ever get to heaven. From here on out, it only gets worse. Because there is no hope. And so as Pastor Mike said that, well, I think yeah, Dr. Ruckman said that if he did not know Christ, he would be drunk every day so that he can just forget about the misery and just live up his life because there is no hope beyond the grave. I made a note in my Bible. Um, John Gill, a commentator, um, said the following about this no hope. One without hope is not reckoned a man, but a beast. In human form. Hope is a property of the human soul. Hope is a property of the human soul. So someone who has no hope has no fear of hell because there is nothing like that. There's no hope of heaven. There's no fear of hell. There's no fear of hell or judgment. Hence, live like a beast. And that is what a life of no hope is like. But praise be to God. 
but that is not the case. And that is exactly what Paul's going to do in verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So, Christ, our Savior, came and brought peace between Jew, those who were afar, the Gentiles were those who were afar off, and those who were nigh um, are, the, um, are the Jews. It's in, Paul referred to that in verse 11 as saying the uncircumcision and the circumcision. So in Christ, our Savior, both of us are brought nigh. Now, how did he do it? Christ did it by ultimately bringing peace between God and man. In 2 Corinthians 5 and um, verse 18, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconciled to Christ, Jew and Gentile. And because of that mutual reconciliation, we are that peace has been made. This unity has been created. Not because of anything of that individual group, but because of something mutual, something that brings those two together. Now peace and fellowship is possible because both are reconciled to God. Have a look at verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. So, together, in Christ, there is harmony. Notice it is Jesus who restored us from this alienation we experienced in, in verse 11. Um, we may not experience the same animosity today that a Gentile or a Jew back in that day may have experienced towards one another. But the point is, I think, that there shouldn't be, um, Christians shouldn't go about separating, as in bringing in ordinances and things again that, that separate us from other people, but rather we should go out reconciling. Reconciling. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation to reconcile, just like Jew and Gentile should be reconciled, people from any background should be reconciled. And the only way that is possible is in Christ. That's the only way for, for world peace, as people would say, is if people come to Christ. And I think that's the beauty of the body of Christ, that that is possible. We see people from all races, all, all backgrounds come together and find that um, unity in Christ. Verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now up to verse 17 is one sentence. And it explains essentially how Christ made it possible for the Gentiles to be made nigh. Some use this verse to say that our sin separated us from God. As much as that is a true statement, it's speaking here about Jew and Gentile being, um, being separated, not us and our sin. So Paul explains the separation as an unscalable wall between Jew and Gentile. Our social and our religious differences separated Jew and Gentile. Now, this may be a reference to in the Old Testament, which is referred to as the court of the Gentiles, which kept the Gentiles from entering the sacred worship areas um, in the temple. And so as the Gentiles weren't allowed to go past this wall, this court of the Gentiles, the same way the Gentiles spiritually weren't able to partake of these promises and these covenants that God gave to the Jews. But now that wall of separation has been broken down through Christ. 
So Christians should not construct new walls, but rather share the good news. Reach out and reconcile. Because this is what God's will is. We'll see this in verse 16 um, down to 18, where it says that it is God's will to bring this reconciliation. Now, how did Jesus go about breaking this wall down? Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, that's two, one new man, so making peace. So, one of the main things that separated Jews and Gentiles is their laws and their ways. In other words, their, their ordinances. I'm not talking about moral laws, as in general the Ten Commandments, but ceremonial and dietary things. And through Jesus' death, Christ abolished the Old Testament ceremonial laws, feasts, and sacrifices, which uniquely separated Jews from Gentiles. These things, these ordinances, are no longer important. They had a purpose for a time. We saw this in Galatians. We saw this in Romans. The law had a purpose. These ordinances had a purpose to separate the Jews, to make them a peculiar people. But now... They are abolished in Christ. And this abolishing led to one new man. One new man. In verse 15, um, it says, He made of, made, make in himself of twain one new man, and so making peace. This refers to a completely something completely unlike it was before. It's no longer Jewish or Gentile, but it is Christian. In Galatians 3 verse 28, it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. In Romans 10 verse 12, it says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. All right. Do you see how there is a, a one new? It is not a Gentile becoming a Jew or a Jew becoming a Gentile. None of that. It is a saint. And we'll see that as we go further. And this is obviously referring to the body of Christ. So, verse um, 17. No, I skipped a verse. Yes, verse 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So if you think of the cross and its crossbars, you'll see that the Jew is on this side, the gentle is on this side. Both of those are brought together and they are both one in Christ. So that has been bridged, what I want to say, by the cross reconciled unto God. The reason there is peace and unity is because of the mutuality, as I said earlier, of our salvation. It is the its author is God, and its means is the cross. Author, the plan of salvation, and its means is by the cross. And so it says in one body, that is the body of Christ, the church. We saw that last week, and I, I find it very interesting that the church means a called out assembly. And so we are called out from our 
respect of previous associations. The Jew is called out from his previous association. The Gentile is called out from his previous association. And they are called out to form the church, um, this body of Christ. Um, all right, verse 17. And came and preached, so having slain the enmity, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them which were nigh. Afar off, referring to Gentile, nigh, referring to the Jew. Now this message, which is obviously the gospel, needs to be preached to Jew and Gentile. There is no difference as to the message by which salvation comes. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Peter said that there is no other name given whereby we must be saved. And obviously referring to Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts um, is a constant outreach to both these groups with the message of the gospel. In, um, in Acts chapter 15 verse 11 where um, we have the Jerusalem council and all these, these, these apostles came together and they discussed about should we convert or um, Gentiles to, to Judaism, what should happen, what message should be preached and all that. This was the conclusion, Acts chapter 15 verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. We, Jews, even as they, Gentiles. By the same grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1 verse 16. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God, of the, the gospel, is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Christ came and preached unto you. That's what it says in verse 17. And preached peace unto you. Now when did Christ go to the Ephesians to preach peace unto them? Well, Christ went through the message. How does Christ preach today? In um, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How does Christ preach today? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God um, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, um, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now it says, now then we are the ambassadors for Christ, as though we did beseech you, um, by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We are the ambassadors. We are to beseech in Christ's stead. We are given this ministry of reconciliation he had. And so when it says preached peace unto you, Christ preached peace unto you, it is through the, the, the willingness of someone whose feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, going and teaching and preaching to all other nations. Now, notice uh, back in Ephesians chapter four, uh, chapter two, um, it speaks about peace. In verse fourteen, it mentions peace. In verse fifteen, it mentions peace. In verse seventeen, we just saw, Graham came and preached peace. The gospel is designed to create peace. It should be delivered in that way whenever it is spoken of. A message of peace. Verse eighteen. For through him um, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. 
through him, that is through Christ, through his atoning work on the cross, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now by the spirit, right, we are baptized into Christ and we are adopted and sealed. We've seen all these things come to play so far. Baptized into Christ, adopted and sealed. But it's also by the spirit who also intercedes for us when we pray. And hence, we can boldly approach or have access to the Father. That's why it says in verse 18, we have access by one Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we can boldly approach this throne of grace. Verse 19, Now therefore, you and ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Gentiles, he's speaking to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the Saints, not with the Jews, not with any other group, the saints, the body of Christ and of the household of God. That is who the saints are. Because remember, there was this idea in Christianity um, that Christianity was almost a new direction of Judaism. Okay, And that's why there was this whole proselytizing and um, this um, we saw in Galatians how they tried to force the law onto Christians and all of this, this, um, what's the word? I can't remember now. Uh, anyways, but there was this idea that Christianity was a continuation of Judaism and that it was somehow exclusive to the Jews. And, um, some Gentiles may have noticed this separation in the early days of the church and wondered where they fit into the picture. And so Paul clarifies this in verse 19. He says, you are fellow citizens and no longer strangers. Why? Because we are all of the same household. We are all of the same household. The body of Christ. Paul knew this with certainty. Not, be, um, not because. Uh, Paul knew this with certainty. Not only because he saw fruit among the Gentiles. But because Christ revealed this mystery to him. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 3. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Which what, what is this mystery? Which in other ages was not known unto the sons of men, but is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here is the mystery. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And so that's why Paul knew this with certainty, not only because of the fruit he saw, but also because it was revealed to him. All right, verse 20, I'm finishing up. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul is saying, just because you are a Gentile does not mean you don't have a solid origin, nor that you will have a shallower faith. As saints, in other words, Jews and Gentiles, the body of Christ, we have the message of God preached by the prophets as a foundation, Jew or Gentile. All of this prepares, prepared and pointed to Christ. And now as a Gentile in the body of Christ, we have those promises. We can see those things and they form part of our foundation, part of the prophecy that, for, that um, spoke of. Christ 
to come. In verse 20, it also speaks about Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You can open to 1 Peter chapter 2. It'll be the last place we turn to. 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read about these stones. So when Christ came, he came as the most important first stone laid on this foundation. That is what a chief cornerstone is. It's the first and the most important stone that is laid. In Isaiah 28 verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And so this is the prophecy of Jesus being this, this cornerstone. So um, when building um, back, in day, back in the day, this cornerstone was the first stone laid. And it was the reference for the rest of the building. It was perfectly squared and perfectly located. It set the direction, it set the course for the rest of the bricks to come. And we'll see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 2, verse 5. It says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we are these lively stones which built up the spiritual house, this temple which we read up, read about earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's because Christ laid down, or he, because Christ is laid down, that we can be placed as lively stones alongside him, together forming this building. Now I'll keep First Peter and just have a look at um, verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 2. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord. There we see reference to this temple again. Now, every new Christian is a new stone in this temple of the Lord, right? In reference to the body of Christ. We saw that in 1 Peter 2. Each has a place and a function. God put you there on purpose. And each, has a, um, each stone has stones surrounding him. And then I want, that I see as a picture of an influence in those nearest to you. So your location is given by the course of Christ placed there by Christ as a lively stone with an influence in the stones around you. That's the functioning of the body of Christ. And 1 Peter 2 verse 5, if you look at that again, adds something very beautiful to this picture, I believe. It says at the end of 1 Peter 2 verse 5, um, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. In this body, this building, we must work together to offer a communal sacrifice to God. We must also, as believers, seek opportunities to do well to those around us, as this is an acceptable sacrifice to God. That is why the church should not be filled with bench warmers, um, and each, of, each one of us should seek out the Lord regarding our own involvement in the body of Christ. We are a stone placed with a purpose um, by Christ with works. As we saw, we are his workmanship created in Christ. There are works that God wants us to complete and influence the sphere that is around us.
So each member, each brick in this temple has a place and a purpose. Okay, let's finish up verse 22. Um, in whom you are also, um, in whom you are, you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Wherever a true body of believers is found, God's presence is found. May we strive more and more to make God welcome in our midst, not just as a church, but also individually. May we also be more in tune with God's presence when we come together for worship. And remember that we are together for him. We are together through him and we are together by him. And ultimately, we are together to him to bring him glory. And that is why Christ or in Christ, we are all together. This unity exists. We are this temple of God. Each one playing a role in this temple. Um, each one of us a lively stone referenced because Christ is that chief cornerstone. Amen. I'll pray for us and we'll finish. Sorry once again for taking a little bit longer. It's shorter than last week, so next week will even be shorter. <laughs> Lord, we thank you so much for this evening, Lord. I thank you for this lesson, Lord. What a, what a beautiful lesson, Lord. Um, this chapter is filled with so much, so many, I want to say, promises, so many good things, so many things that assure us, so many things that, that bring us peace, Lord. Thank you for reconciling us to you. Thank you for breaking down this partitioning wall. Thank you, Lord, that we can be heirs um, with Christ, with an eternal hope, Lord. Thank you for saving us from being children of disobedience, children of wrath, Lord, following the course of this world without God and without hope in this world. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us to peace with you, Lord. Thank you that we can boldly approach the throne through the spirit which we have access. And Lord, I ask that you bless this evening further for us. And um, may we apply these wonderful truths. May it bring joy and peace to our hearts. And may we serve you boldly because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.